Turn in your Bibles to Acts 22, verse 23 through 23, uh, verse 5. And now the Apostle Paul is in a very tight spot. He said Jesus directed him to go far away to the Gentiles. The implication of that to Jewish ears was that uh, Gentiles were to be considered on an equal plane with Jews and their standing before God. It also to them signaled the, uh, uh, the obsolescence of Jewish rituals such as the dietary laws, the cleansing ordinances, calendar of holy days. What, uh, what uh, was implied by this was that the converted Gentile Christians did not need to become cultural Jews in order to be saved. And so they wanted to put him to death, is what we um, see the response is in verse 22. Uh, Away with such a fellow from the earth, he should not be allowed to live. And in verse 23, and they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks, perhaps uh, so that they could better throw rocks at him, and flinging dust into the air. These are cultural expressions of, of rage. So the Apostle Paul's in a tight spot. And what is he to do in order to extract himself from this situation and in order uh, to protect himself? Is he only allowed uh, to use spiritual means? Is it, uh, is it only uh, right for him to, you know, to continue to pray that he'll be rescued and to proclaim the truth? Should he just trust God and do no more? Or may he make shrewd use of worldly means in order uh, to protect himself. And what we're going to see is that this is exactly what the Apostle Paul does. Godliness does not require passivity. It was Jesus who first said that we are to be as as, uh, wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. And uh, that's what we see the Apostle Paul doing is he's going to insist upon his his legal rights as a Roman, and then his legal rights as a Jew. And then um, next week, Lord willing, we'll see him appeal to his fellow Pharisees for support. And uh, then we'll see him as well exposing a plot uh, to those who are trying to kill him. So let's look uh, this morning at uh, the assertion of his legal rights, first as a Roman citizen and then as a Jew. All right, in verse 24, we begin to see him... uh, Uh, assert his legal rights. Verse 24, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. You will recall that the Apostle Paul was preaching in Hebrew or Aramaic, as the form of Hebrew in those days is known, and so it's likely that the tribune didn't understand what was going on. And so what he proposes to do is to flog him, in other words, torture him, uh, flogging uh, in those days consisted of the use of, of a whip made up of leather straps in which were embedded um, rock uh, and bone so that it would uh, uh, tear the flesh of the back apart. And, and so to tor- through the use of a torturous means to extract a confession out of him. I think that the tribune is probably uh, considering that, you know, if a crowd is this worked up, he must be doing something wrong. So let's see if we can't beat it out of him. Uh, verse uh, 25. Um, verse 25. But when they had stretched him out for the whip, stretched him out, either they would either stretch a person out on the floor or they would suspend them from the ceiling 
or they would uh, stretch them out on a post in order to begin uh, the process of, of, of whipping the, the person. So when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and unconcerned? And in verse 26, you see something of the nervous response. And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So Paul asked the the critical question, is it lawful uh, for you, without a hearing, without a trial, without due process, to flog a Roman citizen? And you see this nervous response in verse 26, because if not only had they bound the Apostle Paul, which was again illegal when dealing with a Roman citizen, but they were just about to flog him, for which he could be dismissed from his post, and beyond that, to, to, to flog a Roman citizen was considered an act of treason. It was an assault on the empire itself, and so he could actually be executed for doing this. Hence the question, what are you about to do? The centurion asks the, the, um, uh, the officer in charge, the, the, the tribune. Uh, so they, they, they begin to deal with this immediately. So the tribune came uh, hastily, we might say, and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And uh, the, the question is, 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 is likely to be looking at the ragged apostle, is it possible that you could be a Roman citizen given your condition? Given your appearance, is it possible that you're a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Uh, The implication there being that you could not possibly afford the citizenship. Again, given your ragged appearance. So to be a Roman citizen, you either had to be born a citizen or you acquire uh, the citizenship by loyal service to the empire as in the military. Or... Uh, you, you, um, you bribed, you, you paid a fee. In other words, you, uh, bribery. It's through bribery that you could also become a citizen, which is clearly what the tribune himself had done. So verse 28, the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. But Paul said, I am a citizen by birth, which would mean I am your social superior and perhaps even your legal superior. Because I was actually born a citizen. You may have paid a price. You may have bribed your way into citizenship. Uh, but I'm untainted by that. My citizenship is, is, is rooted in my birth. I was born one. And so all the more alarming, verse uh, 29, so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid. Afraid of the implications. Afraid of what could happen to him. For he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him and came within an eyelash of flogging him. All right, so let's, uh, let's, let's, let's see what the implication of all this is. Paul, the apostle Paul does not hesitate to insist upon his legal rights. We saw this back in chapter 16 in the Philippian jail when he demanded that they release him because he was a Roman citizen 
and that the people in charge be, come in person and, and, and acknowledge their responsibility for the miscarriage of justice that had happened in Philippi. For Paul to do so is not unspiritual, it is not worldly, it, is, it does not demonstrate a lack of faith. He did it in Philippi, he's going to do it again in chapter 25 when he says, I appeal to Caesar. So he doesn't hesitate, and I think the point would be, we should not hesitate either to insist upon our legal rights. Uh, for example, the right of the First Amendment to the free exercise of religion. So we've seen in recent years challenges uh, to Christian florists and Christian bakers and Christian web designers uh, that are being uh, coerced into violating their consciences and to produce products that are contrary to their own religiously inspired convictions. Uh, we've also seen other First Amendment rights, such as the freedom of speech, freedom of press, uh, have been subjected to challenges in, in attempts in order to uh, limit uh, Christians from teaching the Christian worldview and the Christian moral code. And so those who teach Christian morality uh, have, have uh, there's been the attempts to try to silence them, to accuse them of hate speech or to cancel them, or deplatform them. So what is a Christian to do in such a circumstance? Are we only to pray and passively uh, allow ourselves to be suppressed by the government, by the courts, when in fact we have some basic rights as American citizens or citizens of another nation in the Western world? We have some basic rights like Paul does as a Roman citizen. Should we not insist upon the acknowledgement of those rights and the respecting of those rights and the right to exercise those rights. We have other kinds of challenges, government intrusions on the internal affairs of the church. Uh, for example, can they insist on uh, diversity, equity, uh, inclusion, hiring practices uh, so that uh, uh, so that they, they, they can begin to tell the church who they must hire to serve as an organist or a church cook or, um, you know, a custodial position or, or, or something like. Can they intrude on the internal affairs of the church and tell us who we must hire? Uh, can the government intrude on property issues using zoning laws to uh, limit and restrict uh, the right of the church to use its property? in one way or another way. Uh, this is why uh, these kind of legal challenges are why we need constitutionally informed Christian lawyers who know the law and who are ready to protect the church from attacks on those who would try to restrict the freedom of the church as expressed through its pulpit and, and, and on its property. Uh, those limitations they should be challenged. They should be challenged legally. And to, and to do so is not to somehow, at that point, to um, no longer be trusting God to protect us. No, he expects us to use the means that are available to us. And if we have legal means, we're to use them. And the Apostle Paul provides an example of that for us. Uh, that somebody is going to try to limit his, his, his rights as a Roman and violate due process? Uh, no, they, they, they may not do that. They may not bind him. They, they, they may not uh, flog him, beat him. Uh, the, the laws of the empire will not allow it, and he insists that those laws be uh, protected. You know, we have Chinese brethren 
Wang Yi, for example, who have been imprisoned in China, and, and they have been imprisoned contrary to the specific principles of the Chinese constitution. Even under the communist government, in fact, in direct defiance of the constitution of the communist government. Was he right to insist upon the recognition of those rights of liberty to preach the gospel as, as, as Christians understand it and to be free from government intrusion into the, into the internal affairs of the church? Uh, one, one can question whether, whether or not it was a timely thing to do. Uh, but nevertheless, you can see that ultimately the church has to begin to do those sorts of things if it's going to be able to preach the message that God has commissioned it to preach and to marshal and, and, and utilize its resources as, as, as the church is, is required to use its resources. So the Apostle Paul, number one, he, he insists upon his legal rights, exercises those rights as a Roman citizen. Number two, he exercises his rights, claims his rights, insists upon his rights as a Jew. So we come to verse 30, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews. See, he still doesn't under, the tribune still does not understand what's going on. These are questions about Jewish rules and Jewish laws, and half of what's going on is being, um, you know, is being expressed in a language he doesn't understand. It's all in Aramaic. And so he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. Uh, this would be the Sanhedrin of uh, ancient Israel, and brought Paul down and set him before them. And then we cross over into chapter 23. And looking intently at the council, notice uh, the Apostle Paul is not intimidated. He's not, uh, he's not standing before the council and looking down, head bowed before them. His eyes are not darting around the room. He is fixing his gaze upon the council as a whole. He is unafraid. He is a, a courageous witness for Christ in front, of, in front of this council. He will not be asked to speak. He will seize the initiative and do the speaking. He's not invited to defend himself. He just begins to do it. So looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And he's asserting, I have a clear conscience, not meaning that he's been, uh, you know, morally perfect, but he's not guilty of the charges uh, of, uh, and the crimes of which he's being accused. He has complied with the Mosaic law, is what he is saying. He will say in Philippians 3, 3 to 5, that as for the law of God, he was blameless, uh, particularly in connection with external conformity with what is required by, uh, by the Old Testament law. However, uh, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council that has some power over both civil but particularly over religious affairs, they are deeply offended that he says this. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Now his history records of Ananias that he was a very greedy and violent individual despised by uh, the population in Judea at the time and uh, during the nationalist uprisings in the decade of the 60s, he's killed by the nationalists. 
Uh, So Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Now, doing this was a violation of Jewish law, which required that before a person could be punished for any alleged crime, there need to be evidence, there need to be witnesses, there was a presumption of witness, uh, a presumption of innocence, rather, in Jewish courts as well as Roman courts, and which is one of the cornerstones of uh, Anglo-American law, the presumption of innocence. He must, be, he must be proven to be guilty. This, therefore, was an unlawful act. But nevertheless, a characteristic of uh, the, the unbelieving in, in their rage when it is aroused against uh, Christianity. Uh, when I was a young minister here, uh, Emily and I went out to dinner with uh, Charles Stanley, the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Atlanta. Uh, he was there for 49 years, beginning in, in 1971. And uh, he told me in the early years there, the church was quite split between uh, the evangelicals who wanted the Bible and gospel to be preached and the more liberals who wanted, you know, a, 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 a message, a Christian message that accommodated the culture, that was compromised, that was toned down. And uh, at one point in a Sunday night service, one of the members of the church came up and actually threw a punch at him as he was standing in the pulpit. Uh, Jeremiah, remember, was struck by Pasher, and Micaiah was, uh, uh, was struck by Hezekiah. This is, this is not an unusual thing for it actually to actually lead to violence uh, in, in connection with the the, wit, the Christian witness that uh, the Apostle Paul and his prophetic professors and his uh, uh, subsequent progeny afterward. Verse 3, then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Uh, Now, that's a prophetic word that, in fact, is fulfilled. That, uh, like I say, Ananias is finally murdered by by the nationalists. He calls him a whitewashed wall. It's a a common biblical metaphor. It's in the Old Testament. Jesus uses it in Matthew uh, 23, what's a whitewashed wall? It's a, it's a wall that has a fresh coat of paint, but underneath is uh, rotting wood or crumbling stone uh, that, that masks uh, the, the, in, the, in, in the interior corruption. In other words, it's a metaphor of hypocrisy. You appear on the outside to be something pure and clean, and in the inside you're just full of corruption. You're a whitewashed wall, Ananias. You're pretending to be this high priest and this very devout individual, but here you are. You are meant to be an upholder of the law, and instead you order me struck, and by doing so you violate the very law that you claim to be upholding. Well, they're very, very offended at this. And so we read, uh, read next, verse 4, those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. Uh, Now, the commentators go back and forth about this, mostly believing he's just saying he was ignorant of who the high priest was or didn't didn't see it coming. Some others say he may be speaking ironically. Uh, I, I I, I assume that could not be the high priest because the high priest would never order such a violation of due process in a Jewish court, as he just did. So, of course, I didn't think he was the high priest, because a high priest wouldn't do such a thing. 
Well, be that as it may, whether it's ironic or a straightforward statement of ignorance, he then goes on and cites uh, from uh, the Old Testament, uh, from Exodus 22:28, he says to the shocked council, the Sanhedrin, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of the people. So he, he apologizes uh, for what he has done to bring dishonor to the high priest. Nevertheless, the point stands. What is the point? The apostle Paul insists upon his rights as a Jew. Now, how does that apply to us? Well, I think that it, it, it indicates that we need to insist upon our rights as members of the church or as presbyters and members of uh, denominations. In the 20th century, the mainline denominations, you know what I mean when I say that? Uh, the mainline denominations mean, meaning the old line, the Episcopalians, the Congregationalists, the Presbyterians, Northern Baptists, um, the, the, the original American denominations that re really ran the country for about, you know, from 1630 to 1930, for 300 years. Basically, they ran the country. Uh, every, every president was a member of one of those denominations, as were, as were most of our political authorities. Well, you could almost say that the history of the 20th century is a history of the Bible-believing, evangelical conservatives being outflanked, outsmarted, outmaneuvered by liberals, and they did so despite doctrinal standards and, and procedural rules that should have made that impossible. And despite the fact that the faithful were a vast majority, nevertheless, a liberal minority was able to take over. How have they done that? so that all these mainline denominations are dominated by, uh, by uh, virtually an unbelieving liberalism. How? Well, because the faithful were naive. Uh, because the faithful were reticent to organize. Uh, because they were involved in ministry and they hated church politics and they were more concerned about souls than about uh, exercising power in the denomination. In the meanwhile, uh, the liberals occupied the administrative machinery of the church. They captured the seminaries and the bureaucracy and slowly over time gained control of the churches. They played the long game beginning in the 1880s and for the next 40 years into the middle of the 1920s, they slowly got control of the churches. And then from the 1920s to the present day, there's been this steady erosion of biblical authority. I think one of the landmarks in this whole process uh, has to do with the, the question of the ordination of women. So you have in the Bible, you have 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 14, 1 Corinthians 11, 3 through 16, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, where you have a very clear prohibition of women serving as officers in the church. They may not be officers, they may not be ministers. Uh, and, and the arguments of the apostle are rooted in the order of the creation and the order of the fall. In other words, they're, they're, not, they're not based on something that's culturally relative. When, you get, when you're talking about creation and fall, you're talking about, um, you're talking about that which is not yet cultural. There is no culture, as, as it were, up to that point. There's no, 
uh, there, there's no uh, cultural, culturally relative or culturally conditioned appeal that one can make in order to try to explain away what the Bible says about that, what the Apostle Paul teaches, and what the whole Bible says about male headship in the church. Uh, there's no real way to get, a, get around it. Uh, nevertheless, nevertheless, the forces of progressivism argued that the, those requirements were culturally relative. Uh, they were culturally conditioned. And so they could be explained away, because that was part of the old ancient patriarchy. And they, even, even, even some of them would say, many of them would say, the Apostle Paul was a captive of the, the old patriarchal way of thinking, and that we know better today, and therefore we no longer need to follow these rules since uh, we have, uh, we have been, we're more enlightened than, than, uh, than the Apostle Paul. So you really got a problem there, don't you? You got a problem with biblical authority. You got a problem with our understanding of biblical inspiration, um, of, of the Holy Spirit uh, teaching us through the apostles and the Scripture as the standard and authority for the life and practice of the church. You got, you've got a lot of problems. You've opened a lot of doors. You're on a slippery slope. The, the dominoes are going to start falling after after you accept the argument that uh, male headship. Is, is, is expendable even though the argument for it in the Bible itself is rooted in the order of creation, which has nothing to do with culture, and the order of the fall. So I was, uh, I was a senior at the University of Southern California. A man by the name of Troy Perry uh, came and uh, explained why uh, the apostle Paul's and biblical teaching more generally against homosexuality as a sin, why that was culturally conditioned. He said, you know, the population was very low at that time, and, and so non-reproductive sex was disallowed because we needed to fill the earth, and now the earth is filled, and so that no longer applies. That was his argument. He argued it well. Uh, the Campus Crusade leader who was debating him <laughs> was totally out-argued. So a year later, I go to Trinity College in Bristol, and the Old Testament lecturer, Joyce Baldwin, uh, she begins to argue for the ordination of women. And point for point, her argument was exactly that that was argued by Troy Perry, the pastor of the Metropolitan Community Church. This is what we would call a gay church today. Point, her argument for the uh, ordination of women was point for point mirrored the argument that Troy Perry made on the Southern California campus years before. And I pointed that out. I raised my little naive 22-year-old hand in class, and I said, Miss Baldwin, you are making the same argument that Troy Perry made last year at my university. Explain some of the details. And she said with a scathing tone, uh, thank you for that. Uh, Terry, one of my fellow students turned around and just said, don't be intimidated, don't be intimidated. By 1975, in the Presbyterian, the United Presbyterian Church, which is now called the PCUSA, had passed Overture L, which required that all officers of the Presbyterian, primarily then the Northern Presbyterian Church, must in conscience, agree with the ordination of women. 
There was freedom of conscience up to that point. Will Kenyon was the case point. He later was a professor at, at, at Bellhaven. And Overture L was passed. It led to people like uh, our Art Broadwick leaving the United Presbyterian Church. Because no longer would there be liberty of conscience. So what, and this is a familiar pattern, what was once, what, what, what once was that the quest for mere acceptance then became a standard for obligation. So what at, at, at one point was a plea for inclusion then became a basis for the principle of exclusion. What once was merely asked to be allowed then was obligated. What uh, was once urged to be tolerated then became the basis for intolerance and the exclusion of those who didn't join the revolution and who held to the older principles. The point here is the faithful cannot despise church politics. Doctrinal standards must be upheld. Procedural rules must be followed. Seminaries and the bureaucracy of the church must be guarded. And liberty of conscience and non-essentials must be maintained. In other words, the game must be played. We must exercise our rights as members and presbyters to review the work of the church and maintain its orthodoxy. In my own denomination, there are no liberals. Uh, Frank Barker said years ago, if there were a single liberal that ever showed up in the PCA, be drawn and quartered. Uh, and yet, in 35 years in the PCA, every, I was on the losing side of every significant vote for 35 years. And my side was really the side that wanted to be more strictly reformed and confessional. And then in the last five years, we started to win the votes. And I'm saying it was in the nick of time uh, because it was at the same time that, that the PCA began to flirt with this whole revoice idea and side B homosexuality as a, as a legitimate expression of Christian identity. And the PCA has come around and utterly repudiated that point of view and excluded it from the nom denomination, forcing necessarily, however sadly, those who want to normalize the concept of being a, not a Christian who was once involved in a sinful lifestyle, but a Christian who is known by that lifestyle itself, as though it were still a part of the identity of a believer. And the point, again, is, is, is this. We are required to guard the gospel. The Apostle Paul repeats that. 1 Timothy 6, 20, 2 Timothy 1, 12 through 14. Guard. There is no substitute for eternal vigilance in guarding the gospel. And in order to guard it, it means that we exercise our rights as members of the church at the local level, as presbyters at the regional and in the national level. It means we play the game. We get involved in the politics. We exercise rights, as the Apostle Paul is doing here, among his, his um, fellow believers, as it were, who were considered to be believers, who were the church of the first century, and until it uh, officially and, and finally repudiated the gospel. And so it is uh, for us. The Apostle Paul 
is, is, is doing what here? He's guarding the gospel. And that at times means that we, we use legitimate worldly means in order to do so. We must be wise as serpents at the same time that we're innocent of doves. We need to use the legitimate means that God provides for us in order to, to ensure that the pulpit is free uh, and that we have access to the full use of our, of our facilities, our, 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 our properties. So the Apostle Paul says, you may not flog me as a citizen of Rome. And he says to the Jewish officials, you may not strike me in violation of the very law that you're hoping uh, to uphold. And so we say to our, to our governments in the Western world, our people are not obligated to violate their religious consciences in, in order to meet some political program that you have in mind. You may not force our people to violate their own moral convictions in order to promote the policy of diversity, equity, and inclusion when that involves uh, that which is uh, contrary to their moral convictions. And if that means we go to court, it means we go to court. And if that means we pursue it all the way to the Supreme Court, that's exactly what we must do. And we must not think so spiritually that we're just going to trust God and hope it all turns out. It means we need to be wise as serpents. Uh, and at the same time, you know, we don't want to be politically involved. That's not our mission. We, we, we're not, uh, we don't take political you know, positions on political views. Uh, that's, uh, that's not our, 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 our that's, uh, not what we are, Christ has assigned us to do. But we do, of necessity, guard our rights of the, as a church to be free from in, internal interference in our affairs and any interference with the full message that Christ has commissioned uh, his church to preach. And if society finds that offensive, uh, the answer is ever thus. And there's not much we can do about it, but pray for revival. Pray that the day will come when the masses of our people will agree uh, that the message that we preach is, is God's truth and final truth and saving truth as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray, O oh Lord, that we might be bold and as the apostle and wise as the apostle and, and that we might be innocent of wrongdoing as well. And so guide us, O oh Lord, as these, uh, these issues are more and more pressed upon us in these days. Pray that we would be wise when it comes to the civil government, wise when it comes to ecclesiastical affairs and church government. Uh, we might always guard your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.